Yes, welcome back to The Sizzle. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Sue Roffey, who is an academic, psychologist, educator, social activist, author. We have a really far-reaching conversation thinking about society, children, education, relationships, and I can't wait to get stuck in. Here we go. So... Just to set the scene, we're sitting in a wonderful, you call it a summer house. I do. So it's, it's, I mean, it's like, if you imagine a shed, but much better with beautiful windows and a, a garden surrounding it. And it feels a little bit like something out of a storybook. Does it? To me, it, there's something about the viewing the flowers through the windows makes me think of books like, I don't know, The Secret Garden or something, something a bit fantastical. But it's just a place of serenity for me. So, mm. you know, I can think in here and work in here. And uh, and I think it's really important to be surrounded by green. There's been some interesting bits of research that have come out recently about you can boost your well-being by just two hours in nature every week. Mm. And, um, that sounds really doable. Very doable. To a week. But there's a, lot of, there's a lot of people who spend an awful lot of time in concrete. And I think... Well, it, the research is beginning to say that that's actually not good for their well-being, generally. Mm, I can get that. I can get that. Before we get in, I mean, because I want to ask you questions about that, before we get into that, how would you describe your work? And, and how would you kind of, what's your intro? Oh, my God. That's, <laughs> that's a really tough one, because sometimes people say to me, you know, what do you do? And mm. I'm thinking, which hat am I wearing today? Mm. Um, I was a teacher. I became an educational psychologist and then I've been an academic, an academic and a researcher and I have started writing really in, in, in the mid-90s and haven't stopped. You know, I've constantly, constantly putting pen to paper and all of it is around, I think, partly linked to my first job. I worked with, um, with youngsters who had emotional behavioural difficulties, which are very challenging and they all came from backgrounds which gave them a very good reason to be challenging mm. in schools. And I think that what happens at the moment, and particularly in our education system at the moment, is that I call them double whammy kids. Things happen to them, like either chronic, so they live with poverty or they live with domestic violence or they live with neglect, um, or they're acute difficulties so they're dealing with family breakdown or a specific trauma or something like that and that impacts on the way they feel about themselves and how they feel about the world that they're in and they go to school and they can't concentrate as well they don't get very high marks because their learning falls off when that happens when they're you know struggling with all of that they're often on the lookout for a repetition of their experiences. So they'll be on the lookout for people to reject them because that's been their experience. So they find it harder to make friends. Yeah. They often have not had any very good social skills modelled to them. You know, they haven't... Um, one of the things that I said in the TED Talk that I did on um, Saturday is that how on earth are our kids ever going to learn compassion if they don't experience being cared for? So... And then they get into school and people don't like them, they don't learn very well, they get, they get marginalised, they get excluded and then they get punished. Mm. And to me that's a social justice issue. 
it's just not right. You know, you see a little baby who's, you know, got bruises on and everybody's sympathies are there. But as soon as that baby becomes a five or six or even worse, a 13-year-old, and they, you know, they go AWOL a bit, Mm. you know, all the sympathy goes out the window. Mm. And what I've tried to do, I think, for a good chunk of my career, really, is to be an advocate, particularly for those kids. Yeah. And in all sorts of different ways, not um, not... And that's moved as well into the fact, like, for instance, if you do social skills training with kids who are um, struggling, um, the sort of targeted group of kids, they will learn some social skills. But if you put them back into a class where nobody's perceptions of those young people has changed, Mm. what happens is they reinforce earlier behaviours. So the changes are not sustainable. So social and emotional learning which needs to happen in our schools. Learning to be, learning to live together is just as important as learning to know and learning to do. Mm. But it's off the agenda in many schools these days, which is nuts for our future society and communities. Um, We need to actually do that work in groups, in the whole classes, in the whole areas in which they are going to be, in the context in which they're going to be living and learning and working. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, I'm, I'm totally biased because I think I'm probably mm. on your end of the opinion spectrum. I, You mentioned you started writing in the 90s and you just haven't stopped. That's right. <laughs> do, you have a, do you have like a routine? What, like that? That's interesting to me. I find it quite difficult to write. The first book I wrote was a joint project. We did, we did do some social skills work, myself and two fellow psychologists in um in a in a in a high school and we sat down and thought you know the work we've done is worth writing up and we met together for about four years and had nice dinners with a, with a bottle of wine uh-huh. and, and, and wrote off to um to publishers and said oh we've got this idea what do you think and after about four years um it was Cassell Education actually who came back and said um, yes, yes, we'd like you to write this book. By which time our, our ideas about social issues in schools had changed quite yeah. a lot, you know, mm. from the from the social skills training I, I, idea. Um, and I think we wrote what was probably one of the first books around social dimensions of education. And now there's been hundreds and hundreds since. And it was called Young Friends, Schools and Friendship. Mm. And um, so have supper with friends and drink wine. Yeah, have yeah. supper with friends, drink wine, and then write the book. Okay, and then and that was and that was fine. And then the second one came out from a conversation that I again had with a colleague. We were in a school in which we were having a conversation about a youngster who's about six and about his behaviour. And there was loads of people there, you know, professionals and teachers and parents. And um, at the end. Terry and I were walking back to pick up our cars and we had this brief conversation in which we said, that's just such a heavy use of resources, all those people in that room for a couple of hours talking about what this child needs. If that child had been in that school over there, they'd already be doing a lot of this stuff. So we decided to do a little bit of a research project and look at what schools were doing um, that helped children to settle in when they first went. Mm. And we ended up writing a little booklet um, and publishing it in-house, which was called Settling In and Getting Along in the Infant Classroom. And we both sat and said, we've got lots more we could say about this. Mm. 
And we put a proposal together and we sent it to four publishers and we had all of them come back within days to say, yes, this is a book that's very needed. And virtually since then, most of the books I've written have been commissioned. Mm. You know, people have asked me to do it. Mm-hmm. And I enjoy the practice of writing. I like the magic of words. I like being able to... I'm, I'm absolutely useless with a paintbrush, but I do think that I do have an ability to, you know, paint pictures with the words that I use and actually make what can be quite complex ideas, psychology, accessible. Mm. And I have a big thing about the fact that I don't want to be writing journal articles that, you know, might get me up the academic ladder, but aren't necessarily useful to the practitioners Mm. for whom I would like to reach, which is the the educators, the teachers, the psychologists who are actually working with kids. So one of the things that people say about my books a fair bit is that it's, they're easy to read, yeah. you know, and they're practical, they're usable, mm-hmm. even though they're based in quite solid theoretical foundations and psychological principles. They're, um, they're something that people can get their teeth into and use, and that's what, that's what they're intended to be. Yeah, totally. It's interesting, isn't it? I went through my thesis process being told I need to write in a more academic way, and it made me feel uncomfortable well first because I thought maybe I'm not to the, up at the required standard but then also because I felt that I hoped that I was m- making it making it accessible and it and it was this kind of personal journey of, of writing and rewriting and then the Viva felt like this wonderful moment because it was this it is at the right it is at the right level and uh, and it is also accessible. I think there's a um, there's a bit of an issue about what you mean, what people mean by academic language, mm. because I think if you're going to use a whole load of um, terminology that's only accessible to a few people, you need to be very clear about making sure that everybody who's reading that understands what you mean by that. So it's about defining your terms. Mm. But I also think that in order to write something that is that is theoretically um, sound and solid, it needs to be very insightful and it needs to go into depth. But going into depth doesn't necessarily mean that you use a lexicon that only belongs to you and a few other people. Mm. I mean, I have a real struggle, for instance, with critical psychology because the ideas in critical psychology, i fully on board with. But a lot of the, the, the things that I've read within that field are, are gobbledygook to most people. They, they use a language which they assume other people know mm. um, because, and, it's, and it's a language that is for those people, which is fine for them. But if you're going to be working in the field like we are um, and you know, working with educators, educators have very little time to actually read stuff. Um, so most of the time they actually get uh, to grips with theoretical depth is when they're doing their, their doctorate or their, their master's mm. or what have you. So afterwards it's a bit harder to do. So it's about how do you make things quickly accessible to people but also have depth? Yeah. Um, My friend Yusuf, he's a, an academic in Birmingham now mm. 
and he, with all of the research he does, trains up his participants in research methods. Mm. And I've always loved that. Mm. I haven't actually told him this, but I've always loved that because it just, to me, it, it feels like he's just spreading the power a little bit. Mm. And so now these, these people, you know, something hasn't happened to them. They're like, ah, oh, okay, we've been for a process and we're left at the end of it. Mm able to continue on this process if you want to mm. you know and they, they have the skills to start talking some powerful truth to some power you know and that yeah I I hear what you're saying I like I like that mm. um, and of course the great thing about that linking it to what you're saying is it, it it's not a, you know it's not about trying to use a lexicon to keep people away it's actually bringing people into the conversation absolutely and it's you know I have I have a, I have do have a bit of a thing about about communicating with people about things that really matter. And I think that one of the things that we have a real struggle with, if, you get, if, I, if I can talk politics for a moment or two, is that one of the reasons that the um, Remain um, people in the referendum failed so badly is that nobody was out there saying really clearly and loudly in ways that people understood this is why staying in Europe is a really good idea mm. for us. And I think that why should, you know, the other side end up having all the best tunes? And I know and I know that there's a bit of an argument to sort of say, you know, um, we don't want to, we don't want to say untruths, and I absolutely agree with that. I wrote a blog about why we needed to stay in Europe with just sort of, you know, basically I think seven or eight points because of this, because we've actually had peace in Europe for such mm. a long time, because we have collaborative research endeavours, mm. because, you know, we're supporting a more inclusive general community. Mm. And I was in Croatia last October, and all sorts of places you see things like, you know, this bridge was partly supported by European funding. And it's like, okay, so we're doing that, but also we here, mm. you know, in Wales you'll see this particular project was supported by European funding. And nobody is clearly saying, you know, we need to be doing that because, and of course, if we don't do that, we're too small to be um, a country that has the same sort of power or influence as we might have had when we were an empire, centre of an empire. We're mm. not that country anymore. Mm. And if we're not with Europe, we're going to be with America. And believe you me, I do not want to be with America at the moment because mm. they're, um, there's a whole load of principles and values there that I do not espouse and would hate to see here. I think there's an interesting point there about what I perceive at least, some people feeling awkward about making a persuasive case. Mm-hmm. And I, I am a much less experienced ed psych than you or psychologist than you, but I feel that sometimes I get a sense that educational psychology especially has a bit of a PR problem because it's so hard to describe what the role is. And then, you know, I read lots of articles and see lots of pieces of policy being published where ed psychs are not included as named professionals. And I do wonder if it's because it's quite hard to kind of give a, a, a strap line of this is how we help, this is what we do. Um, and, I, and I wonder if part of that is people kind of shy away from being persuasive because they feel like it's an... I don't know. I don't know what you think about that. 
Well, I've got quite strong views about the educational uh -huh. psychology profession um, because I think that, I agree with you, ed psychs are really undervalued and underused and part of that is because they have been sidelined by the statutory assessment process. So there's a lot of um, there's a lot of psychologists who feel that the one thing that we can offer that other people can't because they're not trained or um, allowed to is to do the statutory assessment work, and that's where our bread and butter lies. And if people have got mortgages, they want to see that that's you know that there's a plenty of that statutory work, so we absolutely have to be doing that. And I think that that is um, a real shame, and that's for several reasons. I believe, and I see that schools really, really want support with a whole raft of things. And my view is that educational psychologists are the linchpin between health and education. They're the linchpin in a way between parents and schools. And what we should be doing is applying psychology to education in a practical way in as many places as we possibly can. Mm. And I think that although I was I'm a I mean I'm, I have a great belief in local authorities having been very positive, but now many psychologists and psychology services are trading and they're independent psychology services around. I think to some extent that has given them more freedom mm. to actually do some of the things that I think desperately need doing. And I've seen services do things like say this is what our offer to schools are. I've worked in a number of services as a, a consultant or a trainer in the last couple of years. And I can remember having a conversation with someone in the north, a principal psychologist yeah. who says, yes, we have traded services and we go to schools and we say we just want to make it very clear that our primary client is the child so if you want us to do things that we don't fit no. with our set of values and perspectives about who we are then we won't do it yeah. and she says schools have accepted that um, and I think that's another part of being really clear about communicating. Mm. This is what we can do and this is the difference we can make. But they and teachers are working in what is, in lots of places, a toxic educational system because the whole focus on knowledge and skills rather than the other issues about how you live your life and how we relate to other people um, and the huge focus on competition in schools yeah. so that people and we can see how many of our young kids young people are struggling with their sense of identity because what they're being told all the time is you know you have to look about how you measure up against other people uh -huh. rather than being the person you are and being the best of the person you are and to me that's just to me that's actually toxic mm. and a lot of my the reason we set up Growing Great Schools Worldwide, the reason that my TED Talk was about what it was, yeah. was exactly that, because I think that we need to actually start really challenging what is education about, what do our schools need to be doing, and I think there's loads of teachers out there who are, and I meet them, and Sykes, all the time who are saying we're on the wrong pathway this is not healthy for our kids mm. we don't this is not why we went into teaching we want to actually do things 
that actually really value each individual child mm. and at the moment our system is stopping that happening. And the policies are being made by people who know sweet FA about child development, they don't know about how kids learn, they've had no really experience except in their own schools, half of which were independent schools with you know loads of resources. So basically they're making policies that are not based on evidence but based on what in my view, it's a flawed ideology. Mm. I could go on. Yeah, yeah, no, I hear that. So I, when I train to teach, I train to teach just at the end of the Labour government and they, they had an ideology about education and then the ideology changed with the government. And what I thought was quite interesting is that I trained to teach through Teach First, which is a kind of you know, national organisation, and they they changed their ideology of how they wanted to train their teachers. Um, so I I was trained in a way that I think, to some degree, was trying to help me understand the whole child. And then I think that they kind of shifted their emphasis and thought we want to have more of a cognitive psychology influence to the way that we're teaching. So thinking about you know um, the way that. Uh, the demands on working memory might affect um, processing and, and understanding and all these kind of things. And I thought about this the other day and I, and I kind of wonder if there might be a bit of a, a power struggle or debate between cognitive psychology influences and developmental psychology influences on how we run the education system. I, I don't know if that's a, a false dichotomy I've created, but that's something that I occurred to me the other day. Well, I think I think what I want to do is sort of throw something else in the works, which is about um, the fundamental importance of relationships and emotions, you know, which is left on the sidelines all mm. the time and mm. are, in fact, some people say to me, you know, relationships, emotions, they're, you know, a bit of the icing on the cake in schools. Mm. They're not. They're the cake. But everyone prefers the icing on the cake, though. They're the cake. They are the cake because... They are all there all the time. Relationships are there all the time, whether they're relationships with teachers or relationships with um, with peers or relationships and social capital across the whole school. All of that stuff really, really matters. And it's it links not only to the emotions that people have about whether or not, um, A, they feel valued or, B, they feel anxious, you know, all of those different sort of feelings. Um but also around resilience and the importance of, A, having somebody who rates you. Often, in many places, it's your family. But mm. for some kids, it's someone in school who rates them. And it's knowing that you belong and you matter. And that's actually very much about child development. Mm. But that's what the resilience research is telling us over and over again. And John Hattie, in his book, Visible Learning, which is, a meta-analysis of over 800 meta-analyses of education. I mean, it's a very significant volume. What comes out as the most important overriding thing in, a, in an educational setting? The teacher-student relationship, yeah. you know? And how much of your training was about how to foster those relationships? Because I doubt there was very much. Very little. And I think that probably the closest we got to it was thinking about positive behaviour management, you know, so praising. And, and I, think, I think kind of what, what came underneath that was the idea that, and that would, that would build a relationship. 
Did you ever hear about the studio schools movement? No. Ah, uh, so just what just when I started, so probably like 2010 type time, maybe just before, no, it would have been 2010, 2011, um, the Young Foundation started uh, a pilot, I suppose, of schools that were going to be influenced by developmental psychology principles and they were going to be called studio schools. And the whole point of them was really, if I remember correctly, um, that teachers would know less children and so they, they would have they would have better relationships with them and it would really be a relationship powered um endeavor and um it's tricky because then i think that the ideology changed and so there wasn't the funding this is my interpretation at least and then they didn't really achieve the impact that had been hoped mm. and it kind of got canned and i suppose I, I worry that maybe that was like the chance that was the chance to to test it as a process i'm not sure i mean uh, the, the thing about the thing about relationships is that people think that you've got to be they've got to sort of be sort of quite intense you know and no they don't you know the the the, the little conversations that you can have um the micro moments um, I, I wrote a paper, well, 2017, yeah. um, which was about um, what was it called? Ordinary, ordinary magic needs ordinary magicians. The power and practice of positive relationships for youth resilience and well-being. It's a good title. It was published in a Danish journal. It was um, a, a requested article, and um, of course, they sent me the journal. And I can't read any of it because it's all in Danish. But I put up most of the things that I write. Um, on the Grand Great Schools Worldwide website mm. and on academia.com. And to my great delight, and I'm sure it's not me, but the but the key search words, that I've been between the first and third percentile of people who are looking my work up, which is, you know, amazing for me because it makes a lot of difference about actually writing these things. I mean, not just the books. You won't find... Um, you won't find management in my books and you won't find behaviourism in my books. In terms of terms used? In terms of my approaches, mm. you know, so I do not do reward and punishment. I might I might recommend um, a natural consequence for something, you know, and when I grew my own children, there would be things like natural consequences. Mm. But that's not punishment. You know, if I ask them to lay the table because I'm cooking and they don't do it because they're watching TV, I stop cooking and go and read a book somewhere. I mean, that to me is a natural consequence. <laughs> they realise, you know, oh. that this is, this is going to happen. But a lot of it is about relational stuff and it's about knowing some of the basic emotional literacy things. Like if a, if a child is um, having a complete um, meltdown, you don't ask them why they're behaving like this and you certainly don't punish them. You actually give them some space to allow their amygdala to stop firing on all cylinders and for them to calm down and mm. maybe find them some ways to calm down. But just simply greeting kids, you know. There was a nice little piece of research done um, in New South Wales asking children how they knew a teacher cared about them okay. because a lot of the time teachers say they care and pupils don't recognize it and what the students said was so simple it's painful one they know my name two they smile mm. at me 
you know, this is not that difficult. Mm. Three, they ask me how I'm doing, but not just at school. They show an interest in me, not just as somebody who is learning at school and getting grades. So some of the stuff I do, I do um, a social-emotional learning framework called Circle Solutions. And although it started out as Circle Time, it's moved on a very great deal from there. So I have a pedagogy that's attached to that called Aspire, which is the A is for agency. You don't tell kids what to do and think. You give them activities and discussion points to um, come up with their own decisions. So you give kids responsibility for the emotional climate of their class. Agency, really important. Um, S is for safety. So nobody has to say anything if they don't want to. It's They never talk about incidents. It's only ever issues. And most of it is, or virtually all of it, is either in a pair or in a small group. Yeah. So you get away from all that individual stuff. Um, no competition. They might play games with teams that compete, and that's fun. That's all right. Um, P is for positivity. So it's strengths and solution focus. Not what we want to get rid of, but we want what we want. Really important. And um, quite a lot of focus on laughing together because laughing mm. promotes oxytocin, which is the feel-good um, neurotransmitter that connects people, right? And people underestimate wow. how important that is. The just art- before you go into I, oh. <laughs> I paused you on the yeah, piece. Yeah, yeah. Because you just made me think about all the observations I do in school. Yeah. And I... I scanned them the ones I can remember and I thought how many lessons have I seen laughter in and some and it was clear that those teachers had a really good relationship with the class but that's such a that that to me was quite it resonated quite a lot laugh laugh together yeah Mm. absolutely and going back to the a agency is that there's a great um phrase which is about teacher control and what I say really clearly in all of the work I do is that teachers have to be in charge of what their their, their classroom is you know in charge of proceedings you know mm-hmm. it's a bit like a conductor of an orchestra right but you don't play everybody's instrument for them and you, you know you don't tell them how to play their instrument so it's not controlling children and my first ever job was with with was very stroppy kids and if somebody ever said to me, you can't make me, the only sensible response is, no, I can't. Mm. I can tell you what the outcome is likely to be if you do this and the outcome if you do that. But ultimately, the decision is yours, mate, you know. And you take the responsibility off your shoulders from trying to control kids because mm. it's hiding to nothing. Mm-hmm. And it makes a lot of difference when youngsters feel that they've got some control. Yeah, that's true. It really does make a difference. So the P for positivity is really important. And a lot of the stuff I do comes from positive psychology. Yeah, yeah, so it's about the importance of kindness. It's about the importance of um, thankfulness. It's important about acknowledging other mm. people. Load of stuff like that. And c- control and responsibility are so closely linked because if you feel yeah. like you have autonomy, you're like, oh, well, I, I, I am responsible for Absolutely. those things too. Absolutely. Mm. And, and, you know, it's something I'm trying to say over and over again mm. because it actually relieves teachers from something that's quite heavy because what they feel is they've got people breathing down their neck and looking over their shoulder yeah. all the time, which is not helping their own sense of safety or their own creativity or their own job satisfaction. And all of that is 
toxic and it leads to toxic environments and look at the number of teachers who are just leaving the profession mm. we need to be able to keep teachers in the profession and one of the things you need to do about that is actually think about what social capital there is in yeah. school and laughing's free and look doesn't take a lot yeah right so the, the I. eye the eye is for inclusion what we know about um about resilience is um and people are saying it and the last um issue of educational and child psychology was on school belonging and i was the lead editor on that and there's another one coming out at the end of the year because it's such a critical thing i'm not um i'm not the lead editor on that one um somebody else a lovely woman called um kelly allen and chris boyle are doing that and they together have written a book called pathways to belonging which mm. is all about um school school belonging and it is not about wearing a pin uniform and it's not about just cheering on the the team it's about whether or not you feel you matter it's about whether or not you feel that you have a voice it's whether or not you feel you can participate yeah. and it's the importance for me is there's two sorts of belonging there's inclusive belonging and exclusive belonging Ooh, and, say more about that right uh, if you want to there's, enough, there's a paper also about inclusive okay. and exclusive I'll link belonging. all of these have yeah, a look yeah. have a look um exclusive belonging is me and my gang right and if you're in that you know you it's it's pretty neat but you have to behave in certain ways in mm. order to stay in there you know and you can see exclusive belonging in things like eating right exclusive belonging in um in places where um people are racist or homophobic because it's about keeping other people out mm -hmm. so it's a having an i it orientation mm -hmm. you know me and my gang and all of you got all of the people outside are outsiders and they don't count and one of the things you can do then is dehumanize them mm. so exclusive belonging is very nice for those people inside or can be unless they want to get out and then that's really hard um an inclusive belonging is we are all welcome and we value and appreciate and acknowledge diversity um in all its aspects race religion sexual orientation whatever so it's about feeling, you know, what we've got at the moment is that we've got um, huge increase in exclusions of kids, and what they need most is to feel that they matter and they belong mm. and they're included. And when I do um, the Circle Solutions stuff, we mix people up all the time, so they then have a conversation with somebody they don't normally have a conversation about. Mm. And some of the things they do are called pair shares, which is find out, what you've got in common about, and it might be something as simple as, what do you both hate to eat? Have a conversation about what you mm. both hate to eat. So they're having a, a safe conversation about something, um, but they're looking at commonalities. And the other thing about inclusion is that the teacher or facilitator does everything the students do. So they also have those conversations. So the feedback that we're getting from teachers is that having done circles once or twice a week, they're finding out things about their, their pupils that have put them in a completely different light. Mm. It's given them more understanding. It's given them more empathy. Mm. It's giving them hooks for yeah. relationship building. And that really, really matters. I mean, it's in such a fast-paced, stressful environment, it just seems like you're describing just edging a little bit of time, just creating a little bit of space. And then, oh, you know, suddenly you're 
you're connecting more with your with your students. Absolutely. It's, you know, it's just those go, building blocks of relationships. I'll go on to the R and the E in a minute. Uh-huh. But the first time I came across Circles, which was in the early 90s, well before Jenny Mosley ever did anything, was um, in a school in New Jersey. And I went and visited, and it was partly because of the um, friendship book that I was writing with my colleagues. I wanted to see um, what was actually going on internationally. Mm. So I arranged to visit this school. And the principal of this elementary school said to me, my whole school runs around magic circles. That's what he called them, magic circles. They happen for 20 minutes in every class after recess every day. He says it's just changed the whole culture and tenor of the school. Mm. And for those people I know who are actually taking on board Circle Solutions in a major way so that it's happening across the school, and I've done been doing this internationally now in Australia, but also there's, there's trainers in China and in Japan and in Egypt all over the place, that they're actually adopting some of the methodology um, into their staff meetings. Mm-hmm. And people say that staff meetings has changed out of sight because people feel that they have a voice, that mm. they're meeting other people that they don't often talk to. Mm. It's breaking down cliques, it's breaking down barriers, and they feel that they have a say in some of the policies that are being developed. Um, and those those really matter. And so there the, is a mirroring there, isn't there, in, the, in terms of the, the way that senior leaders might relate to teachers because of pressures and the way that teachers might relate to students because of pressures. Schools are ecologies. Mm. We know that. You know, we know that the conversations that people have in the staff room impact on how they see students and families yeah. when they go into the classroom. Mm. And the way the way school leaders behave is absolutely critical to the culture of the school. And school leaders these days, I think, need to be courageous and kind, basically. You know, and I know that they're very, very busy, but they also need to model what's really important. So if the conversations are all about how incredibly important it is to get, you know, um, an outstanding rating from from Ofsted, and that's the conversation all the time, other things get left outside that conversation. Mm. So it increases stress, and they could actually talk about well-being and still get the same results. But the conversations generate the anxiety they generate the pressure and that goes through right the way through to the kids and the families and that's not good for our kids Mm. and if it's about really really valuing each and every child I mean I'm a huge fan of personalized learning and personal best and I know that that's not happening very much not in our state system but it's certainly happening in some of our independent schools Mm. and you know why why are we not actually allowed to have that you know, it seems really unfair. The R in Aspire is for respect. And respect is, um, first of all, about listening to somebody else and not prejudging them because quite often people jump in too fast to make assumptions. Mm. And I think that that's really important. And also respect about um, not – it's they're all – in line with every, everything else, but it's also about, you know, not making assumptions about people's culture or um, um, or not leaving people um, outside a meeting room while you have a pre-meeting. You know, you see that happening. Mm. Um, and I think that's sort of a level of respect, saying, letting people know when the meeting's going to start and does it work and it, is it okay for them? Can they manage that? 
It's you're respecting what their lives are mm-hmm. like as well. Mm-hmm. So I think respect, partic- not just kids, but families as well. Um, I wrote a chapter for a book on social emotional learning with a colleague about some of the work we've done with Aboriginal communities in Australia called Respect for Culture. Mm. Because the frameworks that are coming from America about social and emotional learning are all very much are about individual skill building. And if you're working with a collectivist community, then individual advancement is against their way of thinking they are thinking about you know in order to be part of this group you know i can't be seen as above them Mm. so i can't be seen as better than Mm. my mates right so the what we do with 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 aspire and with circle solutions is actually make sure that it's about us together well-being begins with we you know not with i Mm. or me and the last one is equity i first of all had equality there um, equality is, um, I think, important because if you read the research about um, the countries that are doing best in the world in terms of happiness and well-being are those that have the least um, gaps between the haves and the have-nots. Um, so equality is important, but I also changed it because if you have equality in a school, it's you're risking saying, well, everybody has to be treated the same, and that's not what gives people... Um, a fair deal what you need is equity which means that you have to sometimes be flexible in Mm -hmm. order to be able to meet people's needs properly Mm -hmm. and for me equity is much more sensible word than equality Mm. because it's about it's about opportunities it's about facilitating those opportunities and kids often understand this better than adults do they know that you know that you know tommy here actually does need a bit more of teacher's attention because they're struggling they'll know that Rather than somebody sort of say, you know, it's unfair that, you know, you should talk to Tommy more than you talk to, to Annie, who's actually, you know, doing very well on her own. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes teachers would say, you know, what you have to do is sort of punish this child because they did that, that without actually saying that sometimes you have to be a bit flexible about your responses to things. Mm-hmm. So that's the Aspire and, um, and, of course, the equity in circles. The respect is about people listening to each other. So one of the guidelines... There's only three. One of the guidelines is when one person is speaking, we listen. And believe you me, it's the adults that are the worst about interrupting and speaking over each other. Um, And the equity is about everybody gets a chance. Everybody gets a chance to speak if they Mm -hmm. want to. Everybody gets a chance to feedback. Everybody gets um, an opportunity to make a choice. If they're not abiding by the three guidelines, which is, one, you have to listen to people, and two, you don't put people down. And the third one is that you don't have to say anything if you don't want to, so it's, yeah, it's a safety yeah. rule. Um, and people, if people constantly talk above it, everybody else, the teacher says, you know, it's your choice. You have to abide by these guidelines. Um, are you going to try and do that, or would you like to step out for a bit? You know, and people, because people have fun and they enjoy the games and the discussions mm-hmm. and they're talking about things that are really meaningful to them, they almost always amend their behaviour. And I did a research project with um, with 18 undergraduate students in Western Sydney um, in eight schools. Mm-hmm. And they, mo- most of them, not all of them, most of them were training to be teachers. And they said they could not believe that just repeating the guidelines actually pulled most people back into line because they wanted to be there. Mm, yeah. 
Yeah. But they wanted to be there, and that was... But they want you know, to be there yeah. because they get a voice, they have fun. And it stops the more um, loud children being loud all the time, and it gives opportunities for the quieter children to be able to say yeah. something, should they choose to do so. Yeah. It works. You know, it's it needs to be facilitated according to the principles, which is why it's different from circle time. Mm-hmm. But if you do that, then the research is telling us quite loud and clear that it has not only outcomes during the circle um, sessions, but it has it generalises, so people are more thoughtful towards each other. Mm. I've just I've just published the third edition of Circles. It's not published. I've just submitted the manuscript. It's published early next year. Um, Circle Solutions for Student Wellbeing, in which there's just loads and loads of activities. And this time I've really pushed the boat out. So there's there's one about um, one there's one that's called Wanna Be in My Gang. Mm. And it's just an activity in which people are thinking about what are the benefits of being in a gang? You know, what's is it nice it's nice to belong, it's you know, what what are the problems? You know, is about what do, if people do something that you don't feel comfortable about? Mm-hmm. What's that? You know, do you want to be in that gang? So it's actually really getting people to, mm. without telling them, it's getting to think things through. Well, it links back to the inclusive-exclusive yeah. divide that you, yeah. you highlighted earlier. Yeah. Um, that's cool, yeah. I'll link to ooh, I'll link to the second edition that you... Third edition. Well, but that's not out, does it? No, it's not out yet. Not um, yet. And uh, have you heard of the big picture education movement? Don't forget that I have been back in this country from Australia for two and a half years and there are some things I've missed out on. So, no, I haven't. So, you mentioned individual personalised learning earlier. And personal best. So, people listening, I'm just getting a tissue because my nose is running. And um, so, this principle is... It, it started in America, but again, kind of similar to the word you were describing, it's, it's, it's now practised across the world. And... Students receive a personalised curriculum. So these are are older students. um, And the way that they can receive that is that for two days a week, they go out of the school and they take part in some work experience that's relevant to their interests. And so the teachers get that time to kind of, to reflect on what the students are doing and think about the kind of skills that they're demonstrating or what they're learning and things like that. And I was so excited when I heard about this movement probably in 2015 or so and I was like but I wonder how it would apply to England I don't know if it'd be possible and the innovation unit have just they've been working on it since and they've just facilitated the starting of first school in Doncaster and I think there'll be a few and I'm really interested to see where that goes because it I kind of it feels really aligned with the psychological principles that I think are important. And I, and, I, and I hope it will also, you know, maybe unwittingly, but also exemplify some of the things that you were talking about in terms of how important it is for children to be treated as individuals and to have that autonomy and to have that responsibility and things like that. We yeah. need to grow good kids. You know? We do need to grow good kids. That's a yeah. great phrase. It's, mm. it's, I mean, one of the activities in the third edition is, is called Growing Good Men and it's actually getting getting boys to actually I've done a, a women girls activity as well it's about you know looking at um, thinking about you have a significant birthday in the future you know 
um, what do you want people to say about you? What does it mean to be a good man, mm. right? And the other is, um, what does it mean in our society to be a real man? And do those things conflict? Powerful. Just asking people to think it through, you know? Um, now, I mean, it'd be really great um, doctoral thesis to actually explore what happens as an outcome of those schools. Mm. Put the link on to the, you yeah, know, yeah, to, the to the talk because I'd be mm. interested in finding more about that. I mean, Steiner schools have some sort of element of some of those things, but also I know I've got friends who've got children in um, in independent schools, and there is far more of an individual framework around things. And at the moment, our education system is so geared to getting everybody to be doctors, lawyers and merchant bankers, you know, and mm. that's in my TED Talk. Mm. And I went and had my hair cut last week and I had a conversation with my hairdresser, who's a lovely woman, really lovely woman. She had the woman. same hairdresser, like a consistent hairdresser? Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. And um, she was saying that it's quite hard to get people to come in as trainee hairdressers because all the pressure in schools is they ought to be going into higher education. Mm. She says, I want people who really want to come and actually learn how to be... She says, it's a good job. Mm -hmm. It's a good career. She says, but the pressure in schools is not saying that it's a good career. It's saying what you need to do is that you need to go to college. You need to go and get a higher degree. You need to go and do mm. this. And we don't need everybody to do that. Yeah. We need to revisit the apprentice scheme yeah. for kids. So I got my hair cut maybe a couple of weeks ago. And um, I might... So, all right, li little tangent. Um, I had my hair cut by the same hairdresser between the ages of my first haircut up until probably 23. And it was this little place in Hackney called Gino's. Mm. And it just was... It was just what I knew. I loved it. Started off with Gino, then his son, Roberto... And I went on holiday and I was in the same room as a hairdresser and we were having a few drinks. I was like, oh, you know, what would you do if you were cutting my hair? He said, come, come to my house tomorrow and we'll, we'll do it. And that was a really tricky moment because the haircut was unlike anything I'd ever had at Gino's. And it made me think maybe there's a world outside of Gino's. But I haven't fully forgiven myself for not keep keeping on with Gino's. And I walk past still and I feel guilty. <laughs> Loyalty. Loyalty, yeah. <laughs> But the haircut I had the other week was with a guy who said, I started a degree. I thought this isn't working for some reason. So I dropped out. I thought about what do I really want to do? And I wanted a job that had some kind of a, some kind of a social life. I wanted to be working with cool people. And I thought, what are the different options? And I thought hairdresser is one of them because I, he felt like it comes with a kind of, consideration of fashion and a, and a social life and he trained with an organization called blue tit who owns salons and they trained him up from scratch and it was the first time i'd ever met a hairdresser like that normally i'd met hairdressers who had thought i want to travel so i need something i can travel with and this person had been trained from scratch by an organization and i just thought that's really interesting to me because it shows that they're you know they're thinking in the long term like we want to kind of develop people who really care about hairdressing and it's a it's a there's a i really like the story because it just showed such a such insight from this person thinking mm. like what do i actually want 
this isn't working for me. What do I actually want? And in a way, you know, school should be encouraging people around and not just and not just seeing, you know, this this child isn't very good at this, therefore we'll see what else is available, which is which is a bit of the zeitgeist now. I mean, when we were in Australia, um, we had work done on our on our house. And there were two or three people there. There was one guy in particular who was sort of a trainee carpenter. And he works three days a week and then two days a week, maybe one day a week at college, but certainly at least a day a week at college. Um, And the building trade in Australia is quite regulated. People are well well trained to do the job. Um, they, They do it at sort of different levels and people are well respected, well respected. And what you get here is... People are very anxious about a builder because so many of them are cowboys Mm. and there's not a great respect for them. And one of the reasons that there's not a great respect is because it's sort of seen as not a valued occupation Mm. in the same way. We all need builders, for goodness sake. Mm. You know, we all need those sort of artisan sort of professionals. It's just that in education, they're not given the same value as people who can get high scores in academia. And to me, it's like, what sort of society are we creating here? You know, it's not one that's actually working for a hell of a lot of people. And, And, of course, what's happening with some of those jobs is they're bringing machines so that those jobs are disappearing. So, you know, then they've... I mean, the level of poverty in this country at the moment and the level of inequality is something that engages me and exercises me a great deal. Mm, mm. I feel like the the conversation about vocational training is it's almost cyclical because I feel like governments keep getting it wrong in terms of how they approach this. And and something you said there to me seems like almost the kernel at, at the heart of it, which is that you know there needs to be a value, really. But, but it all it all comes from you know think about the eleven plus. You know, it was supposed to be a decision about, you know, what sort of education would suit you best. But who didn't talk about it in terms of passing or failing? So 70, 80% of our children went to schools as failures at 11. And, you know, it, it impacted about how they thought about themselves from that moment onwards. I mean, I have a cousin in Australia, in Australia, in Canada, who is a wonderful artist, and she gained an Early Years Art Teacher of the Year award in Canada. And her very first comments to everybody back home: "Not bad for an eleven-plus failure." Mm. Wow! You they, know? they carried it with them, and people do. Mm. Lots and yeah. lots of people do. I, yeah, I read, I've started reading um, Donut Economics. I don't know if you're familiar I've heard with of it, it, yes. And in the early, I suppose, the kind of setting the scene phase of the book, um, the author talks about framing and, and the idea of visual and verbal framing of economics and how that can influence the, the narrative, you know. And it's so true when you think about what you described in terms of the 11 plus, that framing of pass-fail just mm-hmm. did, did it, did it all, you know, did, did all the damage. And 
I, you know, I still feel like that's something education is is finding difficult is in terms of different routes. Mm. There's, you know, there's the academic route, and then there's, you know, and then you you see the kind of the tone change, and and then the the other route. And then, of course, what people sometimes do is they leave school early and they think that, or they leave school without the qualifications. And I think the only way I can have sort of importance and status in my life is to make a huge amount of money, however I do it. And you can see quite a lot of people who are doing that, you know, mm. who actually reach the echelons of, you know, buying sort of, you know, mansions in sort of mid-Essex and what have you. But they, they're not actually going for what the research tells us is a meaningful life because a meaningful life doesn't mm. exist mm. in, you know, in stuff and status. It yeah. exists in other things, you know, having the sense of meaning and purpose in your mm. life and having good relationships and yeah. things like that. Layers of the onion. Um, so we're getting to, I suppose, the end, the end portion of our chat. Is there anything you, you feel like you want to say that we haven't covered? Um, I think I think I'd, I'd probably last like to tell you about uh, the project that I'm currently involved mm-hmm. involved with. You know, apart from the Circle Solutions stuff, is that I'm working with a number of other positive psychologists to put together what will originally be a book, but actually we're going to have a website and we're going to just, which is called um, Creating the World We Want to Live in: Positive Psychology for the Future. Mm-hmm. So it's not just about education it's also about you know health and it's about economics it's about media it's about politics about community and there's seven of us and we're all going to write about three thousand words each so it's going to be pretty brief and punchy with quite a lot of follow-up on the website Mm -hmm. and everything about what does a good childhood look like what is a good relationship what um, is a good health service. What does good ageing look like? Mm. So, um, and it's about the fact that what we're doing, it's all coming around from a, um, a positive psychology conference that we went to b- b- three years ago, in which so much of it was around um, happiness. And um, I'm doing this in inverted commas. Yeah. I have a real problem with the word happiness. Oh. And very much about individual happiness. You know, individual subjective well-being. Mm. And it's like, you know, no, we need to be actually looking at what difference do we need to be making at a much bigger level. And, yes, it is ecological, so relationships are very critical, but it's about, you know, they 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 exist within other other parts of our wider society mm. uh, and the, the, the conversation you can see what's actually happening in in the states where things like um the belief in a just world myth which is the basis of the american dream says everybody gets what they deserve which means if hardship falls upon somebody they don't get as much empathy and people who happen to have a lot of money possibly because they inherited it you know or they've trodden on other people's backs to get there are seen as deserving it and that is a very false um ideology yeah. and but it it determines the society that we're seeing a lot in America. And I'm very worried about whether or not that will actually come over to this this country, mm. especially if we, if we leave Europe. Mm. So what's the timeline on the, the project that you described? Um, well, we are just um, just been given a contract for, for it. It'll be published by Routledge. And we are hoping to have this um, written 
probably by October, mm. end of October, because next year the um, European Conference in Positive Psychology, which happens every two years, is going to be in Reykjavik. And one of our authors is one of the organisers of the All conference. Right. And we are hoping to be able to have it published by then and have the conference theme mm. around creating the world we want to live in. Mm. That's very cool. It makes me think of, I read a biography of Maslow and that kind of idea of looking at the best of things and trying to, trying so to shape the yeah. discussion that way. Um, it made me excited reading that because I just felt like it was quite bold, quite a bold aspiration. You have to aspire. Yeah, you have to aspire. <laughs> going back to aspire. I mean, I mean, and I can't. I mean, some, some uh, there's a psych service who are um, have done a bit of um, piloting work with aspire, and they're actually going to use it as their framework for wellbeing across the county mm, and take it into schools because they think that it's something that sums up everything that needs to be happen- happening mm. to promote wellbeing for people mm. and. And it really came out of the Positive Relationships book that I edited in 2012. 17 different chapters um, about different aspects of relationships. There's, it was edited, so there was one on, um, there was one on parent-child relationships, there was one on school relationships, that was the one I read, there was one on um, couple relationships, yeah, there yeah. was just lot fun on friendships, lots of different ones, one of work relationships. And um, there's, there's a thread through all of them, and aspire is the thread. Yeah. About what works. I like that. About what works. So I've got lots of links to put in the episode notes, I which is so. always great. I hope so. And I'll also, I normally put a link to, if the person I'm talking to is on Twitter or something like that, I'll put that in as well. That's lovely. I am. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, yeah, I feel like we had quite a, it felt quite like a passionate conversation, but also we ended on a positive, which is nice. It doesn't always happen. Really? No. Oh, right. No, I mean, I, I, I started quoting something from Greta Thunberg, who I read this in um, one of the Sunday magazines a couple of weeks ago, and she says, um, I can't remember the exact quote, but it was something like, hope is, um, is not something that you, you, you find or look for. Hope is something that you create with your actions, mm. and I like that. That's a lovely place to end. Thanks, Sue. You're very welcome. I've enjoyed it. Ah, finishing up with a quote from Greta there. And I really can't tell you how much I enjoyed speaking with Sue in her wonderful garden. I feel like there are some poignant points in there for everybody, whether you are a parent, whether you are a child, whether you work with families, um, regardless. Uh, You might just be interested in politics. It's all there for you. And please check out the show notes for ways to contact Sue, for ways to contact myself, and also for links to all of the wonderful resources that we mentioned in the episode. If you want to keep in touch with The Sizzle, you can find us on Twitter at The Sizzle Pod. Otherwise, I will catch you on the next episode. Before then, feel free to share the episode, share other episodes, share The Sizzle generally because this is really all about the people that listen to it and the ideas that are shared. All right, until next time.
ses os.